Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we'll just begin this morning by reading our text. We're looking at verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, last week we began a mini-series concerned to do our duty as God's appointed shepherds of his people. And since the preachers and the teachers of Christ's church, if we're to do our duty, we ought to be extremely concerned for our people Because according to Scripture, in all likelihood, some of you sitting in this room right now are not saved, are not regenerate. And so the duty of shepherds is to give you scriptural tests to test the genuineness of your faith. And this is for your sake. This is for mercy for you. And I mentioned that I've observed that those having their faith tested in this way through the preached word, they tend to fall basically into four categories. And we, we mentioned this last week. The first category is the true believer who loves hearing these tests because it confirms the genuineness of your salvation. It gives you added comfort and joy at the grace of God. We said the second category is the true believer who doesn't love hearing these words because you're walking in sin or in rebellion in some area of your life. And so this preaching brings guilt. It brings conviction that you're not walking in the manner worthy of your salvation. So it causes anxiety and hopefully pushes you toward obedience, pushes you toward Love for Christ. We said the third category who's listening would be the unbeliever who is listening with fear and trepidation and even humility and maybe by God's power working up the courage to finally repent for real. Even though many have believed for years, well, of course that person's saved. He's a member of the church. He's been doing this and doing that. And yet in your heart, you know something may not be right. And of course, the fourth category is the unbeliever who is hardened and never believes it's possible to be condemned and will continue being a fake all the way to the end of his life. And for that person, this message serves simply as condemnation at the judgment. Every single one of you will fall into one of those four categories. And so it is the duty of the shepherd to periodically issue what I'm calling a faith checkup, checking in with you that you might examine yourselves, that you take stock of what God has done in your life and reassessing the work of salvation wrought by the Lord. And so to give this faith checkup, we've been going to the interesting text here of John chapter 12. And so using John 12, we're doing some tests. Last week, the test was, do you love Christ? And today's test from John 12, verses 12 through 19 is, do you worship Christ? Do you worship Christ? Now we have to say some words about worship 
first because our American evangelical culture has all but obliterated the true meaning of worship. We've turned worship now into an emotional experience that is not only meant to serve me, but meant to entertain me as well, that that's what worship is. We even name worship services. There's the contemporary worship, and there is the traditional worship. Why? Because worship is all about me, right? And so I get to cherry pick what I want in worship because it's for me. The wildly popular group Jesus Culture continues to pack stadiums. And according to their website, they, quote, spread worship everywhere. And yet they present worship as purely entertainment and just all about music. And that's what it is. Now, many of their songs are theologically sound. And yet their work not only represents, but also funds the teaching of their home church, Bethel Church, which teaches a a hyper-radical form of the prosperity gospel, which says that suffering has no place in our theology at all. And they also portray Jesus Christ much more as a human being who just figured out how to, how to get the miraculous power of God. And that's what we're supposed to follow him for because he was a human who could get miraculous power. And so it is a, it's a great irony that the music group supposedly spreading worship everywhere actually supports a heretical gospel and a heretical view of Christ who's the very one we're supposed to be worshiping. So we can't go down that road. Worship is the key question concerning the state of your soul. That is the question. Not actions that look a lot like worship, but true worship. Worship which God accepts, which he receives, because access to God has been granted now. The gate has been thrown open. The door has been opened through Christ and through forgiveness of sin. And so we have to recenter on, on the lofty and the grand, noble ideals of true worship. And so to just kind of get our minds thinking in this direction, I want to give you briefly 10 principles of true worship just to lay the foundation. First, worship can only be offered by Christians. Worship can only be offered by Christians. Jesus called out the false believers pretending In the church at Laodicea, he said he would shortly spit them out of his mouth if they didn't repent. You can't do anything to worship God if you are not regenerate. You can't give him anything. You can't show up to anything. You can't serve him in any way. In fact, the Bible says in multiple places that that actually fuels his anger at you. It would be better to stop pretending. Here's a second principle to think about. Worship is the response of God's revelation of himself. Worship is the response of God's revelation of himself. Just the fact that we know that God exists ought to engender worship. That is our natural response. When Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6, he worshiped. When John saw the vision of the glorified Christ on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.17 records, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is the response. Here's the third principle. Worship changes your behavior, not just your mood. Worship changes your behavior, not just your mood. It always makes me so sad to hear a Christian say, I need to get to a worship service because I'm feeling terrible. That's not what it is. It changes your behavior. Worship is to be preceded by confession. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 16, 
David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, you don't go to worship until you have confessed. In the Lord's table, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, this is an act of worship, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord Here's the conclusion. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, worship ought to drive godliness. Here's a fourth principle. Worship may involve the emotion of happiness. Worship may involve the emotion of happiness or it may be offered in the midst of sorrow. Or it may be offered in the midst of sorrow when Job was afflicted with great suffering Job 1.20 says that he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and what? And worshiped. Do not think that worship is supposed to just be happy. Worship is something you do regardless of what's happening in your life. It is what you owe to God. Here's another principle. Worship is for God's glory, not yours. Worship is for God's glory, not yours. Revelation 15.4 says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. I'm always saddened when I drive by a church, there's so many of them even in our town that has a sign with the church name and then underneath it says a spirit-filled church. What does that say? We jump around and do crazy stuff more than you do. And that somehow that means that we are better. That is simply seeking glory for myself, not God. Here's a sixth principle. Worship is commanded in corporate gathering. Worship is commanded in corporate gathering. Colossians 3, 16, speaking of the gathered people of God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Genuine worship is preaching and singing and doing those things together. Trivia question, what do you call someone who says, I'll just worship by myself at home? Answer, an unbeliever. You must gather with God's people unless you're physically prohibited from doing so. There's a seventh principle. Worship is commanded individually. Yes, we gather together, but we're commanded to, to worship individually all over Scripture. One example, Psalm 88, verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. This is personal. This is one-on-one. Show me somebody who says, I, I have trouble worshiping Christ. I'll show you someone who doesn't know Christ. It is our instinct to worship. I have been in the room when I believe somebody has come to faith in Christ and the first thing they want to do is talk to God. You don't even have to tell them. They just want to communicate with their God. Here's an eighth principle. Worship is connected forever to blood. Worship is connected forever to blood. We cannot sanitize the blood out of worship. In the old covenant, animal sacrifice was necessary to atone for the sins of the worshiper 
to be freed to worship God unhindered by the impurity of their sin. In the new covenant, the sacrifice of Christ has atoned for our sin once for all. But make no mistake, though you may not see it physically, there is the blood of the Lamb of God on the doorposts of this building if you want to be here in genuine worship. Worship is always connected to blood and always will be. How do we know this? Because right now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God is our Savior who has on his perfect body the scars, the wounds that were inflicted on him when he bled for us. Here's a ninth principle. Worship is connected to our own sacrifice. Worship is connected to our own sacrifice. In the old covenant, the animal sacrifices cost you This is why Jesus was so disgusted with the animal sellers in the temple because he didn't, all you had to do was pull out a couple of coins and get a, get a, get an animal. It wasn't you picking from the preciousness of your own herd an animal that you had raised, that you had seen, maybe that you had even helped birth. There was no cost involved and he condemned this. In the old covenant, you wouldn't dare show up to worship without bringing something to God. In the new covenant, we give sacrifices of service. We give sacrifices of money. We give sacrifices, according to Romans 12, of our entire life, that you are a living sacrifice. You don't show up to worship without bringing God something. And finally, one more principle. The attitude of worship described in the Bible is that of bowing down in submission The attitude of worship described in the Bible is that of bowing down in submission. This is contrary to the idea of jumping around in an emotional frenzy in some sort of artificially induced sentiment. That's not the attitude of worship. Worship is not the the, the spiritual equivalent of smoking something. It is bowing down before a holy God. Yes, there is joy. Yes, there is delight in worshiping the Lord. Yes, we ought to smile. But we're never to forget that worship is at its core an act of submission first as a slave to a master. Now, of course, the key element in worship is the object of your worship. Every one of you here worships something. You can't help it because you're made by God to be a worshiper. You will either worship God, the true God, through Christ, or you will worship something else. You don't have, there's not a third option. You will worship something. And so our test today is, do you worship Christ? Because that's the only option that will get you to heaven. So we'll begin that sentence and we'll end it several different ways. First part of this test, do you worship Christ as your Savior? Do you worship Christ as your Savior? Now, this might seem like an obvious question, but that word Savior gets thrown around so much that I think we forget that that's actually the dividing line between true worshipers and false worshipers. Jesus said of the false worshiper who believes himself righteous in his own good works, who believes himself spiritually well, so to speak, Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, False worshipers do not view Christ as a savior because they don't think they need saving. Now, picking up our story from last time, Jesus has come to Bethany. He's in the village just outside of Jerusalem. It's just days now before Passover. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are gathering in and around Jerusalem. He's enjoyed a dinner 
in his honor at the home of Simon, the former leper, a man he had healed of leprosy who lives in Bethany. His disciples were in attendance as well as Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus had very recently raised from the dead. Mary has given Jesus the tremendously loving gift of anointing him for his coming death and burial with expensive ointments and the other gospels indicate that at that point Judas went out to receive his bride from the chief priests to betray Jesus. And now we pick up in verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The supper at Simon the leper's home took place six days before Passover. Some feel that this places the supper on Saturday night since the day of Passover would officially begin the next uh, Thursday at sundown and that Jesus rode to Jerusalem then on Sunday and we've known that for centuries as Palm Sunday. We celebrate that the, the uh, before Resurrection Sunday. Others feel that this places the supper on Sunday night, which would be six days before the actual Passover day, which would mean he rode to Jerusalem on Monday. And still others feel that the supper happened on Saturday night, but John 12, 9 through 11 takes up another day. I argued for that view when we went through Mark's gospel and then that Jesus rode to Jerusalem on Monday. But no matter which variation you take, I think there's two very, very strong reasons to believe that Jesus rode to Jerusalem to officially present himself as the king of Israel and he did it on Monday, not Sunday. First reason, at this point, the Gospels are extremely detailed about what we often call the Passion Week. The Gospel of Mark devotes over one-third of the entire Gospel to this week alone. But if Jesus rode to Jerusalem on, on Sunday, we have a problem. There's a day, Wednesday, that none of the Gospels record anything happening. In fact, it's often traditionally called Silent Wednesday. Now, we can admit that this could be seen as an argument from silence, which is not a legitimate logical argument normally, but given the fact that every other day of the week is given enormous detail, having detail devoted to it, this would be very, very unusual. And a second reason that we strongly lean toward a Monday is that it's obviously no accident that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This is all part of God's plan. And now, for the very first time, he will allow his enemies to take his life. He'll allow them to take his life. There's been numerous other attempts. He's always escaped them easily. But he's coming to Jerusalem during Passover week. And this is an important key for us. Passover, the Jewish holy day, was instituted by God to remind the Jews of how he passed over them and didn't bring death to their homes in Egypt, but instead accepted the sacrifice of a lamb, the Passover lamb. And Passover clearly was a foreshadowing of the coming sacrifice of the lamb of God, that is Jesus Christ. The lamb would be sacrificed mid-afternoon on Passover day, sometimes the day before in extenuating circumstances, But this is what's important. The lamb was chosen. It was selected by the father of the family five days earlier. And in this case, that would place that on a Monday. God the Father is keeping the same schedule with the lamb of God, Jesus, in preparation for the real Passover lamb. It would make sense that having given the shadow in Exodus 12 of the reality that is to come, that the reality would keep the same schedule. And so on Monday, the day when the Passover lamb is officially chosen, Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem. Verse 13, 
So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, Mark's gospel notes that people were also spreading their their cloaks, their coats, and, and leafy branches from the field. John mentions the palm trees, palm branches here. So there's at least three different materials being laid out by those who truly believe that Jesus was the the savior of Israel. Now, this was an ancient practice for welcoming the new king, and it had a very practical reason. It was so that the new king didn't have to experience the dust of the road. And so they were doing what we would call rolling out the red carpet. They were treating him as royalty. Now, in Jesus' day, there were five major roads that led in and out of Jerusalem. And Jesus chose the road from Bethany. He chose the road from the Mount of Olives. And this is extremely important It was appropriate for Jesus to approach Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives because there are messianic savior associations to this. In 2 Samuel 15, King David had been betrayed by his son Absalom and much of Israel betrayed him as well. And as he fled Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 15, 30 says, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and his head covered. But a couple of verses later, it tells us that on the summit of The Mount of Olives, God was worshipped. Why? Because there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem yet. This was a place where you gathered to meet with God. The Lord told Ezekiel the prophet that someday he would restore a disobedient Israel. Ezekiel 11 verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Verse 20, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. But this is not going to happen soon. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Ezekiel 11 is important because this is when God records the the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and leaving Israel. Ezekiel 11.23 says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Guess which mountain that is? The Mount of Olives. And now Jesus Christ made manifest in the flesh, God on earth is returning from where? Via the Mount of Olives. He'll be rejected, he'll be killed, he'll be raised from the dead, and from the Mount of Olives, God would depart once again. That is the ascension of Jesus Christ. So Jesus riding in from the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, it's really the final piece of the puzzle, the final piece of evidence that he's presenting, that he is the Savior. Uh, For example, God told Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like Moses would be raised up in Israel. Both Moses and Jesus were miraculously spared after their births from the murderous intentions of a king. Both renounced royal court positions to serve God's people. Moses walked out of Pharaoh's court and Jesus walked out of God's court. Both mediated a covenant that brought redemption between God and his people. Another example, God promised that the Messiah would be from David's lineage. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he adds that not only are they saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're also saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. The genealogies of Jesus, both in Matthew and in Luke, clearly identify Jesus as being from David's lineage, David accepted this identification as the son of David on numerous occasions. And now Jesus is officially presenting himself to Israel that your Messiah, your Savior is here. 
And the people, in fact, they're even crying out, Hosanna. It's an imperfect verb, meaning they're saying it over and over again. And it just means, save us, we pray. Now, if you wonder where Hosanna comes from, it's a, it's a Hebrew quote from Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Mark's gospel adds the detail that some were crying out, Hosanna in the highest, meaning that this is a prayer to let salvation come from heaven. And they believed that in the person of Jesus Christ, salvation had come from heaven. But there's one thing they didn't understand quite yet. The real first messianic promise in the whole Bible is not one who sends a savior to conquer nations the promise that sends a savior to conquer sin, and that is Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman would crush the head of Satan. And from a New Testament perspective, we know this would be accomplished at the cross through great suffering. So if Israel is really to receive her savior, it would have to be in repentance of sin to receive him as one who saves from sin, not from political dominion. These people are begging for salvation, but... There's not a full comprehension that Jesus is here to save them from their real enemy, and that is themselves, their own sin. This was a crowd that really liked Jesus, who really thought he was the king of Israel, but only God knows which individuals would ultimately worship Christ humbly. First became because he came to offer forgiveness of sins. And listen, just to make a distinction here, Judas wanted Jesus to be king. He wanted Jesus to be king primarily for his own potential gain, but he would never worship him as savior because Judas didn't think he needed a savior. You might believe everything you've ever heard about Jesus. You might believe that he is God in the form of man, but there must be an individual reckoning, an individual dealing with Christ. As one of my seminary professors once said, you need to do business with God one-on-one. And that business is the business of repentance. Do you worship Christ as Savior? There's a second part to this test. Do you worship Christ as God's appointed representative? Do you worship Christ as God's appointed representative? Now the crowd cried out rightly, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people were crying out from Psalm 118, 25, Hosanna, save us, we pray. But the very next verse in Psalm 118 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of God. Why is this so important? Why is this key? Why would they pick that particular text? Because Psalm 118 is an affirmation, a confirmation of the Davidic covenant of the covenant that God made with King David. Psalm 118, 1 and 2 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. And it was through God's covenant with King David that God would guarantee a forever house of Israel, a perpetual house. And Psalm 118 was part of the the Hallel that was sung especially at Passover, celebrating God as Savior, coming and redeeming them from from Egypt. But this is so important in this confirmation, this affirmation of the Davidic covenant, which the people are, are quoting here. It was always sung in general. Blessed is any worshiper who comes in the name of the Lord. But for the first time ever, we see the son of David, blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it's applied to one individual. There hasn't been a Davidic king on the throne for six centuries. And these people are excited that he's finally here. The people were affirming that Jesus was the one spoken of in Psalm 118. In fact, probably more so than they even knew. Psalm 118 verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Mark 12, Jesus said, that's me. I am the fulfillment of Psalm 118. The people were receiving Jesus Christ as the appointed representative of God, as the one come down from heaven to act for the most high God to represent his interest and his interest was to save his people. One of the obvious major problems with the pseudo-Christian cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, I would put Roman Catholicism in this category, Islam, pseudo-Christian cults, they, they all believe in Jesus, but they have a higher regard for a different representative. Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim that their organization, the Watchtower Society, now acts as the appointed prophet of God representing God on earth. Of course, they've made verifiable false prophecies that Christ would return in 1878, 1881, 1914, 1918, 1925, and numerous other things. The end of the world was supposed to happen in 1975. The only thing that maybe made us think the end of the world was coming was bell-bottoms were in back then. But other than that, there wasn't, there wasn't really much of an Armageddon. And yet they still claim to be God's authority on earth. Mormonism. Joseph Smith had a supposed vision, numbers of them in New York in the early 1820s, making him the official representative of God on earth, that he had been shown these golden plates and from it he had translated the Book of Mormon and he claims there were 11 other witnesses who saw this, but nobody could ever find their testimony and nobody, of course, has found the golden plates. And yet, even to this day, Joseph Smith is still considered the prophet of God to the world. Roman Catholicism, the Pope and the church are the appointed representatives of God on earth. Yes, they believe in Jesus and they they have crucifixes all over the place, but you ask them, well, do you want to listen to Jesus or listen to the Pope? They're going to lean toward the Pope heavily. How about Islam? The prophet Muhammad is the official representative of Allah. Allah is not the Muslim name for God. Allah is a false God that they claim in place of the true living God. The problem is they all believe in Jesus. They just don't believe he is God's primary and only representative. This is important for you because Jesus Christ is the only representative of God, you ready for this, to whom you can negotiate your surrender. He is the only one that God will listen to. Your surrender is unconditional, You acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge your rebellion against the holy standards of God. It's an unconditional surrender which acknowledges that you deserve the death penalty. You deserve physical death. You deserve eternal punishment. And it's an unconditional surrender which acknowledges that God's only appointed representative, Jesus Christ, can also represent you by appearing for punishment on your behalf at the cross. You cannot negotiate your surrender with God through anyone else. There's a third part of this test. Do you worship Christ as the king of kings? Do you worship Christ as the king of kings? Now, the people declared Jesus to be the king of Israel, and they were correct. Now, we should make a note from the account of Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? 
And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The crowds are those who are coming to Passover, those following Jesus. But the whole city, that's a different group of people. These are the faithless Jews of Jerusalem. These are the ones who would shout, crucify him. So it's two different groups. It's not that the people shouting, Hosanna, save us, we pray, were then shouting, crucify him a few days later. Two different groups. Some of them wished Jesus would be king, and some of them wished Jesus would be dead. Now, traditionally, Jews in Jesus' day would say that their hope for a savior, Messiah, literally the anointed one from the practice of anointing a king with oil, that it really began, that hope began when God promised King David in 2 Samuel 7 that God would send a king to rule on David's throne forever, which means by implication this is a divine king because you can't rule forever unless you're living forever. According to Isaiah, the Messiah would be a suffering servant. According to Psalm 110, he would be a priest and a king, but you put all this together, you have a suffering priest and king I think this was less obvious to Israel, even though Daniel 9.26 identifies Messiah as one who will be cut off, who will be rejected, who will be taken. Well, the news got even worse for Israel when Israel split into two kingdoms and eventually the northern kingdom of ten tribes was essentially assimilated by the, the Assyrians. The house of David was this close to annihilation. But the tribe of Judah was one of the two tribes left in Israel. But then they were conquered by the Babylonians and carried off. And now hope of a Messiah was only upheld by supernatural faith and upheld by the promise of God because there was no more throne of Israel. There was no more temple. There was no more line of David that anybody really knew about except a few guys who were in exile. So now it would have to come by faith. But Jesus as king of Israel, that's great. That's terrific. We, we rejoice for that. But I'm not a Jew What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? I'm not an Israelite. Well, this is important to you because Jesus, as the true and lasting king of Israel, which fulfills the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, who who fulfills the Davidic covenant, this doesn't just have implications for Israel's worship of Jesus. This has implications for the world's worship of Jesus. Revelation 19 says, shows Jesus preparing to re-enter the world. Revelation 19, verse 16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's not just a long title. That just means that he is the king over all the kings and he's the Lord over all the lords. And there's two major outworkings, two major implications to Jesus as king of the world. The first one is a judgment outworking. A judgment outworking. Revelation 6.15 says that the kings of the earth will attempt to hide from the judgment of Christ Jesus. They'll attempt to get away. Psalm 2 that I just read speaks of the Son of God coming to rule with a rod of iron. And the warning given is, kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. There's a judgment outworking. But there is a worship outworking as well. During his reign on earth, Zechariah 14 says that the nations in the future will go to Jerusalem to worship Christ year by year. 
And in the final kingdom, after the final judgment of sin, Revelation 21, 24 says that the kings of the earth will bring tribute and bring their glory and bring gifts to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true king of Israel. Israel is the capital nation of the world in eternity to come. Therefore, it makes sense that Jesus as the king of Israel is also the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. You cannot get away from the nationalism that is inherent in the kingdom plan of God. And Jesus is king over everybody. And the choice in scripture is very simple. You can either believe that now and be a worshiper, or you can believe that later and be a recipient of his wrath. Those are the two options. And if you claim to be a loyal subject of King Jesus, what do loyal subjects do? They obey. They obey their king. There's a fourth part of this test. Do you worship Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy? Do you worship Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy? It is incorrect to say Jesus was just a good teacher. Way more than that. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, Mark's gospel fills out some of the details about how this came about. Let me just read to you from Mark 11. He said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will bring it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now I want you to notice a couple things, by the way, the omniscience of Jesus Christ, the all-knowing nature. He said, go into the village and immediately you'll find a colt. He already knew it was going to happen. Why? Because he's sovereign God and he set it up. And he tells them how to answer those who will ask questions. And they did ask questions. So he's omniscient. He also demonstrates his deity. He says, tell them the Lord has need of it. He refers to himself as the Lord, as God. And we notice the humility of Jesus. A a true king had the right to take animals for himself from the citizenry, but Jesus just borrowed the colt. And it was an unridden colt. If no one had ridden it, it was still with its mother. Unused animals were for sacred purposes only. This was for Jesus' ride to the cross. It's interesting too, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus wanted the mother donkey and the colt. An unridden, unbroken colt wouldn't submit to being ridden in a crowded street unless mama was coming along. And so Jesus even cared for the colt. He cared for the owners of the colt. He's omniscient. He is God. He is humble. And how is this Jesus presenting himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? In many ways, Zechariah is probably the most clearly messianic book in all of the Old Testament. It's cited 41 times in the New Testament about Messiah. Zechariah prophesied in the days of the return from exile. He encouraged people to spiritual renewal and to rebuild the temple by revealing God's plans for Israel's future, that there is hope. Rebuild the temple. This is going to be permanent someday. 
And he says in Zechariah 9, verse 9, he tells him to, to be happy. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Their king was here, exactly according to prophecy. He presented himself to Israel as the one fulfilling this prophecy, but they rejected him. And as so often happens in Old Testament prophecy, there is a, a blending of two distinct events into one. The very next verse, Zechariah 9, verse 10, says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, the king has come as predicted. Verse 10, he'll rule forever. Is that what happened? No. In the white space between verse 9 and verse 10, we have the church age, and verse 10 will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. The end of war, the worldwide dominion by the king of kings, like many Old Testament prophecies, this is blending two distinct events into one. But already, Jesus has fulfilled so many of the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem. He was a descendant of Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, all prophesied in different places. He was proclaimed by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God. He is a prophet like Moses. He proved his deity. He proved his authority over demons, over disease, even over death. He claimed to be the judge of the world. He said to some, you will have life. He said to others, you will die in your sins. He had zeal for the Lord's house. He'd already cleansed the temple once of all evildoers. He would do it again the next day, by the way. And now Jesus has ordered this colt prophesied by Zechariah hundreds of years earlier to be brought to him so that he would exactly, precisely fulfill that the king of Israel would ride to Jerusalem in this way. By the way, Jesus is also... He's fulfilling the prophecy given in Daniel that at the time of the decree given by Artaxerxes of Persia to rebuild the Jerusalem temple, we know that date, March 5th, 444 BC, that from that day, it's also recorded in Nehemiah 2, Daniel states that there will be 69 weeks of years, 483 years according to the Jewish calendar of 360 days per year. That gives us a total of 173,880 days. And after 173,880 days, Messiah would be cut off, rejected. Now there's various methods of calculating that time period that have been offered by scholars, but the best calculation seems to be that the 173,880 days brings us to a few days before Passover in A.D. 30. Or in other words, the day that Jesus rode to Jerusalem on a donkey. Some calculations have some slight variances, but still the only possible event to fulfill Daniel 9 is the cutting off of Jesus by his own people. Listen, the Bible never asks you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with blind faith. That's never the case. The hundreds of prophecies of Jesus Christ in Scripture give you perfectly sound confidence. And this is important because you're entrusting your life, you're entrusting your death, you're entrusting your eternity into his hands. And look what's happening 
People are abandoning the false, legalistic, work-centered faith of the Pharisees, and they're coming to Jesus. People are openly showing their fidelity and loyalty to Christ. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They believed the prophecy. Now, verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees, they're already assisting in the plot against Jesus. It's already a foregone conclusion. Judas has gone to receive his bribe. They're frustrated. They have consternation, and they even start pointing the fingers at each other. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, obviously, the whole world isn't literally going after Jesus, but they are referencing the fact that these Jews from around the world who have traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, that they're ignoring the Pharisees now, and now they're going after Christ. Now, I want to just pause right there for a moment, and I want you to remember and think about the purpose of the Gospel of John. The purpose of the Gospel of John is found in John 20. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. In verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, what? The signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And the big climactic sign which Jesus has performed just just in the last chapter, the raising of Lazarus after having been dead for four days, this is highlighted as the reason for the crowd having faith in verses 17 and 18. So did you catch it? The signs that Jesus performed are doing their work. People are coming to faith. They're placing their faith in him. They're following after Christ. So the the big question that this passage asks the reader, the point of the text, when the Pharisees said, look, the world has gone after him, the, the question the text The text asks is, yes, the world has gone after him, but have you? That's the question that John's asking here. Do you worship Christ? And I very purposefully have asked that question in the present tense because there will be a day when the question will be asked of you before God only in the past tense. Did you worship Christ? No more chances to change your mind. Will your answer be a climactic, yes, I did. I placed my faith in my Savior, in my King of Kings, in God's appointed representative, in the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies of the Bible. Or will your answer be anticlimactic, like the ride to Jerusalem of Jesus? The gate of Jerusalem that he was specifically coming to was right outside the temple. Jesus dismounted and walked to the temple. He was inspecting his temple. This is the same Jesus who would inspect the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. He observed the unholy and the sinful ways that the temple was now being used for this phony faith. And he meant to make a public declaration of that condemnation the next day. But while he was there this evening... Matthew 21 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant 
And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And so despite the overwhelming evidence that this is Jesus Christ, the the Savior, the King of Kings, God's appointed representative, the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies of the Bible, Jerusalem failed to recognize him, and the so-called triumphal entry just ended with a fizzle. They didn't know their own great need, and so that evening Jesus left Jerusalem. He went back to Bethany for the night. He accepted the final decision of Israel to reject him. The other three Gospels record that the next day he would go back, but not this time quietly. This time he would go back to not only cleanse the temple for the second time in his ministry, the cleanse of the money changers and the thieves, but he would curse the temple and he would curse the false temple worship, the false faith of the Jerusalem Jews who followed after their wicked leaders. And so, again, the question is, will Jesus Christ receive your authentic worship or will he curse your false, fake worship? Those are the only two choices. Will the words that you hear from Jesus Christ be, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? Or will the words you hear become you who are blessed by my Father Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I would exhort once again from Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You get one shot at this. One lifetime to determine your eternal destiny. My grandmother gave the test. Maybe in simpler terms, she would get her grandchildren around them and say, I'm going to heaven, and I don't want to miss you. I don't want you to miss me. Be there. I remember seeing my little old grandmother. She grew up on a farm. She had a grip that could break iron, and she would grip us by the arm And she would shake and she would say, don't miss heaven. Be there. I think some kids got saved just because they were afraid of grandma. (laughs) Don't miss heaven. Worship the Savior. Our Father, we come to you now fully knowing that you have already said through your son, Jesus Christ, that in the church, amongst the wheat, as it were, would grow up the tares the false believers, the weeds. And yet you never said that some of the tares could not become wheat, that some could not come to faith. And so that is our prayer, Lord, in a room with this many people in it. Almost certainly there are some who do not know you. I pray this would be the day that the Spirit of God moves. Let them move, Lord, to the cross. Let them humbly come to the Savior, to the only one who can meet the need of salvation to the only appointed representative of God with whom they must do business, and that is the business of repentance. Let them now do that in their heart. And for those who do know you, Lord, we just are so thankful to you for our salvation because every one of us, at one point, we're in the category of the lost. And so we give you thanks. We give you our praise. 
because of and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.